You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. We're in, still technically in our Genesis series this morning, but we're going to start out in Acts chapter 7. So don't ask me how that works. Maybe you'll see how it works. And then if you would maybe just hold your place in Genesis 37. So Acts chapter 7, then Genesis 37. We'll be to Genesis 37 in just a little bit. Um, and don't stand just yet. We'll get, to, we'll get to that part. It's been a, kind of a difficult week of study for me because uh, we're coming down to the end of, of our series in Genesis and, and I, I almost, I'm not really sure what to do with myself. It was over three years ago um, that we started this series, and uh, this is message 91 in the series, and, uh, it, it, and I'm not sure. It feels like I'm saying goodbye to an old friend. And um, as I was thinking about how to wrap it up, though, as you go through a, a sermon series, there are some very valid preaching thoughts that come along or that pop up in the text um, that you want to preach, but in expositional preaching, which is what I try to do, expositional preaching means you take a text, and whatever comes next in that text, that's what you preach, and you try to find the one big idea in that text, and that's what you preach. But that sometimes means, though, that you'll skip past a few other things that you see along the way that are very valid and worthy to be covered, but you don't really cover them in great detail, and, and so, th- in many ways, that's how this sermon was born, uh, because in going through Genesis, particularly about the life of Joseph, um, this, these ideas came and, and were very clear to me, but it wasn't really the big idea um, or even explicitly stated in the text, so I didn't really cover it as we went along. And so, uh, I'm going to, we're going to go back to Genesis in a moment, but we're going to start here in Acts chapter 7. And Acts chapter 7 is the account of that great martyr, Stephen. He gives a message um, to the Jewish council um, because of accusations made about him. And we're not going to take the time to read Acts 6, but if you go back to Acts 6 at some point, then you can see how the Jews have accused Stephen of speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Stephen was a man full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost. He did great wonders and miracles. He was a deacon in that first church of Jerusalem. But the Jews didn't, that wasn't the part that bothered them. The Jews didn't like the fact that he would preach with power about Jesus Christ. They didn't like to hear the name Jesus. Does that sound familiar in a culture in which we live? Nobody wants to hear about Jesus. The Jews didn't want to hear about Jesus. So they they had false accusations made against him of speaking blasphemous words And they were into their law, they were into their legalism, and Jesus came along to do away with the law, and they didn't like that. So they apprehended Stephen, and they bring him before the council and the high priest, and and he's got to explain himself to answer these accusations made against him. And Stephen must have been a Baptist because he took this opportunity to tell them how rotten they were. I mean, it's amazing. A Baptist can turn any gathering into you're a sinner and you need Jesus. Weddings, funerals, potlucks, it doesn't really matter. 
That's what we do, right? Okay? Well, Stephen does that, and in doing so, he reveals some things about Joseph that I couldn't get away from, especially with our study the last few months. He starts with the history of the nation of Israel, beginning with Abraham. Then he gets to Jacob's sons, whom he calls the 12 patriarchs in verse 8. So we're going to begin our reading as we stand in verse number 9. Acts chapter 7, verse 9. Again, remember, um, verse 8, at the end of verse 8, it says, And Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. Those are his 12 sons. Verse 9, and this is where we begin with our connection to Joseph. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him. Now I'm just going to stop right there and say, um, there is no circumstance you face in your life that can overcome the presence of God in your life. Meaning, if God is with you, if you have a true, real relationship with the God of heaven... There's no circumstance too big for that. Amen. And of all the things you face, if God is with you, you can face it all. And I'm thankful for that truth, even though that's not our main point today. Just want to point that out. Verse 10. And delivered him, God delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. Now there came a dearth over all the land of Egypt and and. Uh, Chanan and great affliction and our fathers found no sustenance but when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt he sent out our fathers first so this is the story we've dealt with all of this in the book of Genesis it's a summary and at the second time Joseph was made known to his brethren and Joseph's kindred was made known unto Pharaoh then sent Joseph and called his father Jacob to him and his, all his kindred threescore and 15 souls, 75 people. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers, and were carried away over into Sychem and laid in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money of the sons of Emor, the father of Sychem. But when the time of the promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt till another king arose, which knew not Joseph. So that's the part of the story that talks about Joseph. But I want to make a connection. Look down at verse 51 as a summary to the message. Look what Stephen says in verse 51. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. That's the Baptist preacher part. As your fathers did, so do ye. And that phrase is really important. Because Stephen is drawing a parallel between what happened to Joseph and what happened, had recently in this passage, had happened to Jesus. Look at verse, in verse 52. Which of the prophets have not your fathers persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the, notice the capitalization, just one. Who do you think that's talking about? It's talking about Jesus Christ. Of whom ye have now, ye have been now the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. And what Stephen says about Joseph really caught my attention, and I pray that you can see it too, because today's title is simply this: Seeing Jesus in Joseph. 
seeing Jesus in Joseph. One of the things that I did not talk about much in our series because the text themselves didn't lend itself to it was the fact that Joseph was a picture of Jesus Christ over and over and over and over again. And friends, we have no higher calling than to be like Jesus. And when it's all said and done, nothing greater could be said of you or me than this. I saw Jesus in them. I saw Jesus in you. There's nothing better that could be said of you. And I want to look at Joseph's life today to show how important it is. Let's pray and ask God to bless our time. Father, we love you and we need you today. This is uh, beyond me, Lord. I look out, I see uh, this group of people that are my friends, my family, uh, Lord, uh, people that I don't know well and people that I'm getting to know. And, and Lord, I'm reminded of the urgency of the hour. And we live in a culture that is progressively, quickly getting away from you, from your son. And the world needs to see Jesus. And where are they going to see Jesus except in those that follow him? And yet many of those that follow him wear the label. But Lord, don't, don't show it in their lives. And we need to get to the place where Jesus can be seen in us. And I thank you for Joseph's example. I pray that you'd help us to be willing to submit to whatever your Holy Spirit speaks to us about through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If we had an exercise today and took a piece of paper and maybe, you know, I remember in school how you would take a quiz or you would take a, a test and you would hand it to the person next to you to grade it. And you would typically try to find somebody that has a look of kindness on their face or somebody that's a friend of yours to maybe give you a little bit of grace or mercy and you'd switch your papers and your quizzes and, and, and you'd have to, they would then examine your quiz, examine your, your test answers and, and they would mark your grade. Well, if we did something similar to that this morning and we each took a small piece of paper and handed it to somebody in the room here that knows us best and said, okay, let's, let's write out the top five positive things about Chad Viss. And you would give it to the person in the room. Um, if, if Lisa was sitting next to him, he'd probably give it to her or maybe he wouldn't want to give it to, I don't know. Maybe you don't want to give it to the person that you know the best. But, but chances are you'd want to give it to somebody that knows you. Give us the top five things about Chad. The top five uh, things about uh, Brother Roger Watson. The top five things um, about Brother Van Gerpen back there. The top five things about um, Jim and Allison Floth. I mean, there, there's these... There's, there's this list, we want you to come up with it, and we would start listing, or we'd probably have to think about it, but some of those things might be personality things, and, you know, we might say he's funny, or, or she's, she's sober-minded, she's serious about things, she, he's charming, or uh, she's friendly, or they're organized, uh, they're talented, they're musical, they're intellectual, they're very smart, they're educated, they're athletic, you say, we're describing our pastor. Yeah, and all of these. <laughs> Successful. They had a good business. He got a strong career. You know how to handle money. They've really saved well or invested in retirement. Or, they, you know, something about them that I think of is their hobby. They're a Vikings fan. Or suddenly there's a lot of Chiefs fans. I don't know why. 
bandwagon. Okay, so snowmobiling. They like to snowmobile. They like to quilt. We have ladies in our church that like to do that. Uh, you know, those aren't bad traits. They're good things. And, but how many of the things that the person closest to you, if they were to list out the things in your life that are the top five things that they think about when they think about you, how many of those things could be traced to the work of Christ in your life? Would Christ come up? Would something spiritual be listed? Or would it just be personality? Would it just be talent? Would it just be success? Would it just be your hobbies? Would it just be the things that people like about you? Or would there be something different, something deeper, something spiritual, something that can be traced and rooted in the work of Jesus Christ? How long would your spiritual list be? See, that's the thought that I want to approach this text with today. Because as I mentioned, Stephen has been brought before the council for preaching Christ. And he's there standing in front of the council and the high priest and the Pharisees. And they're accusing him of blasphemy. They'd rejected Jesus. They don't want to hear about Jesus. So Stephen uses that time standing there uh, to let them know how they blew it. Jesus came and you missed it. That's what he says. And he, and he uses this as an exposition on how many times the Jews have missed it in the past as well. This wasn't the first time they'd missed it when God tried to send them a message. He started, like we said in verse 9, he started talking about Joseph's brothers. And look at verse 9a, the first part. It says, And the patriarchs, moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt. And, and that phrase in verse 9 really lays the groundwork for Stephen's message. Um, he, is, he starts off with Joseph as his primary example, as his first example in this whole passage to get to the point that he's getting to. And he says, even from the beginning, even with Joseph, his brothers, your fathers, because they were envious, they sold him as a slave. He says, you, our people, because he, he was himself a Jew, our fathers, he says, he says, our people, they had a habit of rejecting the people that God sends to them. And it started way back with Joseph's brothers. And, and Stephen then gets into the story of Moses, how they resisted Moses' leadership. Then he talks about, you know, Moses had the, uh, had the miracles and, and, and he, I mean, think about it. All the things that Moses, God did through Moses. You've got the Red Sea. You've got the, the food and the water in the wilderness. You've got their clothes not, uh, running, or not wearing out in the wilderness. I mean, all these great things happened with Moses. And Stephen even still points out, but even with Moses, he went up under the mountain. And as soon as he was gone for a few days, you went right back to Egypt. Look in, in your hearts. Look at verse 39. And this is, uh, he says, uh, verse 38, we'll start there. This is that Moses, verse 37. This is that Moses which said unto the children of Israel, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear. This is he that was in the church in the wilderness, with the angel which spake, which spake to him in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us, to whom our fathers would not obey, but thrust him from them, and in their hearts... Turn back again into Egypt, saying unto Aaron, Make us gods to go before us. For as for this Moses, which brought us, up out, of the, brought us out of the land of Egypt, 
we want not what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifice unto the idol and rejoiced in the work of their own hands. And and so Stephen is simply making a case and he's pointing out that from way back when, we've always had a tendency to reject it when God tried to send us a messenger. To reject it when God tried to give us some leadership. I mean, Moses had done some incredible things for them. And he's gone for a few days into the mountain and say, well, we don't know what happened to him. Let's, let's uh, look back to Egypt and let's make gods like they have back in Egypt. This, is, this isn't the first time, Stephen's point, this isn't the first time that, that we've done this. We have, a, we, have a, a, we have a habit, our track record is that we reject it when God tries to lead us. And that leads him to verse 51 when he says, "Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. You know, the reason that you find yourself, he says, in so many messes is because you refuse to obey God. It's that simple. And look at the phrase, the last phrase of 51, and this is the kind of the key as well as the first phrase of verse 9. He says, as your fathers did, so do ye. Now understand, Stephen's making a connection between how Joseph was treated by his brothers and how Jesus was treated by the Jews. As your fathers did way back then with Joseph, you just did that with Jesus. Through the history of Israel, as has always happened, we reject God, we reject God, we reject his messengers. You did the same thing with Jesus not long ago. In verse 52, which of the prophets have your fathers not persecuted? And they have slain them which showed before of the coming of the just one. That just one, again, it's capitalized because it's referring to Jesus Christ. So just be. So just so you don't think that I'm making a stretch here, this is Stephen making the connection between Joseph and Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is that those who've come before, like Joseph, were pointing to Jesus. And one of the primary examples is Joseph. And my point in going through the passage today is that there may not be a clearer type in scripture of Jesus Christ himself than Joseph. A a type is when an element found in the Old Testament points to something found in the New Testament. And the type can be a person, it can be a place, it can be a thing, it could be an event, but it's usually um, messianic, and it's all uh, very often referring to salvation. I mean, just think about some examples of types. Think about Noah's Ark. You know, that, that God would provide a means of escape of judgment through the wood of that ark. And, and Noah's family, because they got in the ark, they were safe from destruction. Well, you know, there is destruction coming for anyone who is in sin. And if you don't find safe passage in the right vessel, then you will not be saved from God's judgment. But you can, by faith, enter into relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the wood of the cross and be saved eternally from God's judgment. It's possible. It's available to you. That's a type in the Old Testament. The anti-type is the fulfillment, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, There there are some explicit 
types given in the New Testament. Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Jesus explicitly said in that story uh, in Numbers when, when the children of Israel were complaining and they were whining and grumbling, um, God sent fiery serpents and those fiery serpents bit the children of Israel and many of them died in, in that judgment. And God told Moses, I want you to build a brass serpent. I want you to set it up on a pole. And anyone who is willing to humble themselves and look up to, the, to that brass serpent can be saved and live. Jesus Christ himself said that was a type of the Son of Man. Because I will be lifted up on the cross and anybody willing to humble themselves and look to me uh, will, will be saved and have eternal life. And that, the anti-type, the fulfillment of that type is Jesus Christ. There are plenty of other examples. The Old Testament Passover lamb is a type of Christ. The rock from which Israel drank in the wilderness is a, it prefigured Jesus Christ. Those are explicitly stated. And Joseph, as a type of Christ, isn't as explicit, but Stephen refers to it in Acts 7. And if you're paying attention, it's hard not to see the correlation. I don't believe you can deny that he was presenting an image, Joseph was presenting an image of Jesus long before Christ became public in his ministry. Charles Spurgeon said, there's scarcely any personal type in the Old Testament which is more clearly and fully a portrait of our Lord Jesus Christ than is the type of Joseph. Many have gone through Joseph's life and come up with lists of all the ways that Joseph is a type or prefigure of Jesus Christ. And I read one man's list. He had 101 ways, 101 parallels of Joseph with Jesus. So we're going to go through all 101 of those this morning in great detail. And I, I hope you have, don't just put your watches away. No, we're not really going to go through all 101. I did read all 101 of them. But I, I picked some out. So I want you to just keep your place here in Acts. But let's go to Genesis 37. I want to look at a few of these. This is a different type of message. Again, it's, it's kind of in between series or as we wrap up a series. But I want to look here in Genesis 37. And I want to notice just a few. I want to point some things out. First, I want to just point out both Joseph and Jesus were deeply loved by their fathers. Genesis 37, verse 3, it says, Now Israel, that's Jacob, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was, he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. Joseph is the type that prefigures Christ. In Matthew chapter 3, um, their voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son. In whom I am well pleased. Joseph is the type deeply loved by Jacob. Jesus is the antitype deeply loved by God his father. And by antitype I don't mean uh, against or contrary. I simply mean the fulfillment of the type. That's the term. Uh, number two, both Joseph and Jacob. I'm sorry, both Joseph and Jesus had to overcome spite from their brothers. 
Look at chapter 37, verse 4. It says, And when his brethren, brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. If you read John 7, then you know that Jesus Christ's own brothers struggled with his claim to be the Messiah. I mean, they saw the miracles. They saw the things that he could do. That wasn't their problem. Their problem was that he was claiming uh, to be the Messiah. And they said, if you are who you say you are, go show yourself to the world. But John 7 verse 5 says that for neither did his brethren believe in him. There's another type. Joseph is the type. Jesus is the fulfillment of the type. Three, both Joseph and Jesus were plotted against. Look down in verse, in verse 20 of chapter 37. Um, it says, come now therefore, Genesis 37, 20. Come now therefore and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast hath devoured him. And we shall see what will become of his dreams. Um, his brothers plotted to kill him. Um, but the Pharisees did the same thing to Jesus. In John chapter 11, the Pharisee says, Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Joseph is the type. Jesus is the antitype. Number four, both Joseph and Jesus were, were sold for the price of a slave. Look at Genesis 37 verse 28. Then there passed by Midianites, then there passed by Midianite merchant, mer merchant men, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit and sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. And they brought, to jo brought Joseph into Egypt. So the price of a slave in Joseph's day was 20 pieces of silver. Each of those 10 brothers that sold him got two pieces uh, of silver. In Matthew, 4 verse, uh, sorry, in Matthew 26, it says, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. Those are the words of Judas. And the people said they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. So 20 pieces of silver in Joseph's days. Uh, a little over 1,700 years later, here comes along Jesus. And Judas is selling him for 30 pieces of silver, which is the price of a slave in Jesus Christ's day. Joseph was the type. Jesus is the anti-type. Um, number five, both Joseph and Jesus were tempted. They were both tempted. When, when, when Joseph was brought into Egypt... He was sold to Potiphar. You know the story. Then Potiphar's wife tempted him. She said, lie with me. Potiphar wasn't around. Nobody else was around. But look at Genesis 39. And remember as we go through this again. What Joseph said to her. In Genesis chapter 39 verse 12. A lot of turning here. That's okay. Verse 12, 39. And she caught him by his garment. Saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand. And fled and got him out. Well, the temptation wasn't just for Joseph. In Matthew chapter 4, what does it say? It says that the devil, Jesus, was led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. But Jesus, what did he do? He quoted scripture to resist the temptation. Joseph is the type. Jesus is the anti-type. We could go on and on. Both Joseph and Jesus were falsely accused. I mean, Potiphar's wife said that he tried to force himself. And, and the two false witnesses in Matthew 26 came and said he's been blaspheming. And he was falsely accused. So Joseph is the type. Jesus is the anti-type. Both Joseph and Jesus were bound in chains. Um, both Joseph and Jesus were exalted after suffering. Turn over to Genesis 41 verse 41. 
We, the list is long. Like I said, 101, okay? And if I think you're, it looks like you're drifting off, we'll go back and start over, okay? Genesis 41, verse, verse 41. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. After all those years of suffering, after all the years of turmoil and trouble, then God put him in a position, he became the prime minister of Egypt. Well, I love Philippians 2. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. It tells us that after Christ's death and resurrection, wherefore God hath also highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But it was after the suffering of the cross that God lifted him up and put him in that place. Both Joseph and Jesus forgave those who wronged him. Look at Genesis 45. Genesis chapter 45, verse, verse 4. And again, we've been through this, but I just want to remind you, maybe as we went through it, we weren't thinking about the fact that this looks so much like Jesus. Genesis 45, verse 4. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Look down in verse 14. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Uh, Joseph forgave his brothers. Even after all they had done to him. I mean, 13 years that he had just been, well, no, over 20 years at this point that he was suffering and, and he hadn't seen him in so long. And he could have been bitter and he could have been angry and he could have, with one snap of his fingers, wiped all of them out with his authority. But he didn't. He forgave those who wronged him. And lest you forget, on the cross in Luke 23, Jesus Christ looked out at those who were mocking him as he hung on the cross and was bleeding and suffocating and could hardly even hold himself up anymore. And what did he say? He looked to his Father in heaven and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Joseph is the type. Jesus Christ is the anti-type. And maybe the best of all, both Jesus and Joseph saved their people. Here in Genesis 45, verse 5, now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. What does Matthew 1, 21 say about Jesus? It says, thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. He went through all that suffering and heartache and pain, both Joseph and Jesus, so that God, God wanted to use each of them to save his people. And Jesus went through the cross and the suffering and the pain and the heartache so that people could be saved, so that you could be saved, so that I could be saved. Listen, you've got the type in Joseph. You've got the anti-type in Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of the type. And that's just a few of the ones that I could list. And most of the ones that we listed are big, but plenty were small. Joseph, uh, Joseph was sent to his brethren and gladly submitted to go see his brethren. Jesus was sent to earth. There were both about 30 
uh, when, when they became public. They were both men of compassion. They both trusted in God's providence enough that he could turn the difficulties in life into something good. And we really could go on and on. We could take the rest of the morning and hours today to look at all the parallels between Jesus and Joseph. But I want to focus on our idea this morning. When, when Stephen looked at Jesus, uh, Joseph's life, he saw Jesus. When we read about Joseph's life, we see Jesus. So here's the question this morning. When others look at your life, do they see Jesus? I mean, if someone was to, I mean, this is eternally, I believe, eternally preserved right here, God's word. If God's word is eternally preserved for us and there were things written about you, what would be said about you? Could it be said that people see Jesus in your life? Who do they see if not Jesus? I mean, Joseph's willingness to embrace God's revelation for his life. As a young man, God gave him these dreams. And, and, and maybe he didn't have discretion about telling his brothers. But I believe he was simply responding to the excitement that God revealed himself to me. And he's got big plans for me. And I just want you guys to know it. He was willingly saying yes to whatever the Lord asked of him. He did that his whole life. So my question is, do you willingly accept it when God reveals himself through this book and convicts you of change that you're supposed to make? Do you willingly receive it or do you resist it or even reject it? Because only one of those responses points to Jesus. When it comes to how you respond to God's word, can Jesus be seen in you? Joseph firmly resisted temptation to sin when he could have gotten away with it. And that trait pointed to Jesus. How's your response to temptation? See, if there's some sin in your life um, that has a hold of your heart, maybe nobody else knows about it. Maybe you think you're getting away with it. And so you engage and you get involved in it because nobody else can see it. But, but listen, only one of those responses points to Jesus. When you resist temptation, rather than giving in to temptation, that points to Jesus. And maybe your, your temptation is something the people closest to you, they can see. So it's not something hidden, but the people around you, they know what you struggle with. Listen, either way, your response to temptation either points to Jesus or it doesn't. When it comes to temptation, can Jesus be seen in you? Joseph saw his brothers, they had wronged him greatly. He showed compassion, he showed forgiveness on the cross. Jesus saw those sinners mocking him and he said, Father, forgive them. What's your response when others have wronged you? Do you fly off the handle? Do you respond with that sense of justice? Do you respond with emotion or do you allow God's spirit to help you respond with truth and say, vengeance is yours because only one response points to Jesus. When you're tempted to respond incorrectly, can Jesus be seen in you? Let me remind you why this is so important. It's because our ultimate purpose in this life is to be living, walking, breathing pictures of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 29 says, 
for whom he did foreknow. It's not talking about salvation, by the way. I mean, our Eastside, at Eastside, we believe the Bible is clear that God doesn't choose who gets saved. He gives us a choice to be saved, but he does, from the beginning, choose for those that get saved to be like Jesus. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Jesus set the tone and the rest of us are supposed to be like him. Our highest purpose is to be like Jesus. Our ultimate goal is to be like Christ. It wasn't just God's plan for Joseph to point to Jesus. It wasn't just God's plan for Joseph to endure persecution and keep the faith and have compassion and forgive and, and, re, and rescue the people that wronged him. It's God's plan for you to do those same things because it's God's plan for you to be like Jesus. Your one job as a child of God is to be like Jesus Christ. That, that's where the name Christian came from in the first place. Because those early New Testament believers, uh, it's not because they had church over the door of the place they met. It's because everywhere they went, they looked like Jesus. And the name given to them was almost an insult. Said, oh, there goes another one of those little, those little Jesuses running around. So they became called Christians because they were like Christ. So Christians because they are doing things like Jesus Christ. That's the description. And of all the things that could be said about our lives, is there a more important statement than when I look at you I see Jesus. Dads. Few people see you more regularly than your children. Dads, could your children say, when I see my dad, I see Jesus. I grew up in a home with a dad, and honestly, my picture of God comes from my dad. I'm not saying he's perfect. That's how I think about God, is my dad. He's not perfect, but he showed me Jesus. Moms, can your children say of you, when my children, when I look at mom, I see Jesus. Could your spouse, nobody knows you better, could your spouse say that about you? How much Jesus is seen in you by your spouse every day? Employees, could the people in your workplace say, I, when I see them, I see Jesus. In the, in the way they talk to people, in the way that they work hard, how on time they are, how ethical they are, how they respect authority, how they refuse to engage in inappropriate conversations. I see Jesus. I think Jesus when I see them. I mean, some have come up with a list of 101 ways, 101 parallels between Joseph and Jesus. And if we ask the closest people to you, how many traits that you have that would be like Jesus, how long would the list be? Could you crack 20? Would it be more than 10? Would it be a struggle to come up with five? And the other layer that I've already asked is if people were writing out the traits about you that stand out the most, 
How many could be directly connected to the difference Jesus has made in your life? I'm not talking about personality. I'm not talking about talent. I'm not talking about education or humor or charm. I'm talking about the things that you are because of the difference Christ has made in you. And here's the whole thought in a nutshell. The best way I could say it is we live in a culture that readily embraces the Christian label without embracing the Christian labor. We live in a culture that readily embraces the Christian label without embracing the Christian labor. There's a lot of people out there under the umbrella Christian. But the only way you would know it is because of a name tag. It's not in the way they speak. It's not in the way they treat their spouse. It's not seen in the way they drive. It's not seen in the way they work. It's not seen in the things they do outside of church. But on Sundays, man, I wear the label. Okay, that's great, but where's the labor? We have the name, but do we have the works? If someone was trying to see Jesus in their life, in your life, could they? Like Billy Graham once said, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Listen, if Jesus can't be seen in you, and we'll be closing. If Jesus can't be seen in you, then you miss out on your life's purpose. That's a pretty big deal. I mean, can you imagine living your whole life and doing all that you could to, to be successful in some area, finding out it was all empty, all vanity, that you've wasted your most important opportunities? Listen, if Jesus can't be seen in you as a Christian, you're missing out on your life's purpose. Number two, if Jesus can't be seen in you, then you can't make the difference God intends for you to make. Understand, it's not just about you being who you're supposed to be. You realize that Joseph being like Jesus allowed him to be in a position to rescue God's people. So it's not just about you fulfilling your purpose and feeling good about it. It's the fact that people are depending on you to maybe have their lives changed because Jesus has worked in you. And the third, if Jesus can't be seen in you again, you miss out on your life's purpose. You can't make the difference God intended for you to make. And number three, the people around you may never get a glimpse of Jesus. Meaning God intends for you to point people to his son. But in our culture, how many opportunities do you think people are going to have to truly see Jesus? I mean, I can tell you this. It's a lot less likely today than it was 20 years ago. It's a lot less. Honestly, I look back at our country in the last 10 years. It's hardly recognizable. So if you think that somebody else is going to come along... And be like Jesus enough to point people that don't know Jesus to the God of heaven, the true God, the Father, then you're probably mistaken. You might be the one chance 
that person in your office ever has to see Jesus lived out right before them. You might be the one person that your, your, your child will ever have to see Jesus in somebody else. Can you imagine losing that opportunity? God wants to, make, to use you to make a difference in people's lives. And if you don't do it, nobody else is going to. Listen, if we don't allow Jesus to be seen in us, we miss out on some very important things. So my point, the point today for all of us here is stop wearing the label and start doing the labor. Stop being a Christian in name. Start being a Christian in practice. At home, at work, at church, on the streets. Here's a big one on your social media accounts. It's amazing to me how somebody can be so Christian in church on Sunday and post something on Monday. You're like, where did that come from? That's why I try to stay away from it. I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's discouraging sometimes. We have, and, and what that means is we have more opportunities than any other generation to have Jesus seen in us. But too many of us are content with the name tag. We like the label, but we don't like the labor. We have the name, but we don't have the works. And I just want to remind you that no greater compliment could be made about you and I as God's children than this. I saw Jesus in them. We can see Jesus in Joseph. But do people see Jesus in you? Let's stand together. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. I'm going to ask you a very important question, folks. Because Jesus can only be seen in those who have received him. And I believe probably in a group this size, there are people here that have never received Jesus Christ as your Savior. You know, you can't ever fulfill that purpose if you don't humble yourself first and admit that you're a sinner Acknowledge you have no way to heaven on your own and place your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Would you be willing to do that this morning? Say, you know what, I, I want to fulfill my purpose as a, as a person. And I don't think I've ever placed my faith in Christ. If I died today, I'm not sure I'd go to heaven. And I want to make that decision this morning. Listen, there's no reason to hold back. You say, I, I don't, there's no reason to wait. You might say, well, I'm embarrassed. or that's, I get that. But listen, this is the most important decision you'll ever make. I want to encourage you this morning, if you've come and you don't know that you're saved, if you don't know that you've ever placed your faith in Jesus Christ, or that you'd spend eternity in heaven, would you do that this morning? Child of God, uh, maybe there's an area in your life where you know Jesus can't be seen. And you're limiting his work in your life because of some sin or some habit or some priority that has overtaken him. Can Jesus be seen in you? There are eternal consequences if we don't allow Jesus to be what people see. Father, thank you for the truth this morning. Help us to be submissive and humble. God, I want Jesus to be seen in me. I want this more than anything. God, I pray that we would be willing to do whatever it takes to allow your spirit to transform us into pictures of Jesus. And if there was something written about me that was eternally preserved, I, I would want it to be like Joseph. 
Very little negative is said about this young man. And he was a picture of Jesus. That's what I would want on my record. God, help us to take seriously the call to be like Jesus. Have your will and way in this invitation in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.